Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Most Connecticut residents know the state has some big financial problems to solve, but so does the capital city. Later this month, the General Assembly is expected to vote on the next two-year budget in a special session. Will legislators also approve more state aid to help Hartford pay its bills, too? If not, what are Hartford's next steps? Today, where we live, we explore one option Mayor Luke Bronin has hinted at, bankruptcy. Are you a Hartford resident? How concerned are you that your city could file for bankruptcy if the state doesn't come through with an additional $40 million in aid? Now, if you don't live in Hartford, do you wonder what the impact could be on the state as a whole if its its capital city files for Chapter 9 protection? You can join the conversation this hour, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We wanted to know more about the reasons why municipalities file for bankruptcy. How common is it? To help break it down for us, we're joined from uh, NPR's D.C. office, Liz Farmer. She's public finance reporter at Governing Magazine. Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You cover municipal bankruptcies, the, uh, the repercussions. Tell us first uh, why a city would actually file for bankruptcy. What does it mean? Well, generally, when a city files for bankruptcy, it is because it is, uh, uh, in most cases, tried everything it can to cut its expenses, um, do those other things, uh, you know, partially shut down some services, and it's sort of gone through the list of things that it needs to do, and it's still at a place where it's unable to pay its bills, where it's unable to make payroll in some instances, or unable to pay the, its next debt payment. Um, it kind of gets to a point point where basically it's going to run out of cash in some form or another. And how is bankruptcy that a city files different from someone who's filed for bankruptcy personally? Well, it's a different chapter in the uh, federal bankruptcy code, for one. But um, it, actually, kind of in some ways, there are some similarities. And, and, and one of the biggest ones is that, um, you know, it is a ding on your credit rating. Uh, personally, you know, you have that sort of seven-year scarlet letter on you. And it's somewhat the same for cities. I mean, nobody wants to declare bankruptcy. Most people don't. Um, most and no cities really want to declare it. It's it's this. It's when you've reached a place where you just really have no other options. And it is. Um, and for cities, it's a way that you that they restructure their debt. Um, similarly, for people, people uh, can't make all their bill payments. They negotiate with creditors under the protection of a federal court. It's actually pretty similar for cities. Um, the, and for cities coming out of bankruptcy. They can't. It's they generally can't, are unable to borrow bo- borrow money at a you know at a favorable interest rate. They still have a you know they're rated at junk, um, and they will continue to have that ding on their credit score uh, for cities for years to come. So they're seeing their borrowing costs um, be higher than it would be if they hadn't filed for bankruptcy, having to pay that back down the road. 
Right. It um it, it definitely it, it you could argue either way. This is all kind of theoretical. Generally, when cities enter bankruptcy, their credit rating has already they're already rated at junk. Hartford, for example, is is um is uh, either getting there or just got there. I can't remember. Um, I think it's one notch above junk status. So um, that's not a great credit rating. And if it gets downgraded again, with if the state doesn't come through with its aid and all those things, um, you know, it's going to be expensive for the city to borrow money anyway. And you know, uh, lend people. People who buy bonds are really skeptical of Hartford at this point, so they're going to want a high interest rate. So Hartford's already there with the you know expensive to borrow, and bankruptcy wouldn't necessarily affect that. It just might prolong that that sort of reputation for longer than maybe otherwise. Now, how common is it for a municipality to file bankruptcy through the years? I mentioned that you've covered this extensively. Um, there are examples, of course, we're going to hear about Detroit in just a few minutes, but other places in California. Yes, California is sort of the epicenter of uh, modern-day bankruptcy, unfortunately. So um, I've done some reporting on a number of cities out there, but the one that I'm most familiar with is Stockton, California. And it is a I hate to use the term great, but it's a, it's a great example of service insolvency, and that's what happened with Stockton. The city had to shut down libraries. It um, it shut down hours of operation for the government. Um, it was like it was open every other Friday. They made all these cuts. They and really, really, really tough cuts. And this is a city that flourished in the '90s and in early 2000s with the housing boom. And then as um, and it was an, an extreme exurb of San Francisco. And as that started withdrawing again, the city saw its you know main main boom. It saw housing prices fall by as much as 70. The city cut expenses drastically by 90 million, which is a lot for its budget. It it laid off almost half the workforce in the city, um, and then its police force started leaving because uh, because they could, and so it just saw this sort of spiraling of the city seeing its tax base uh, decline drastically, and then. In the meantime, during those boom years, the city had accumulated massive amounts of debt. Between 2003 and 2009, it, it issued $320 million in new debt, which is roughly twice what the city spends in any given year. So um, all of a sudden, in, you know, in the early, in 2010, 2011, the city found itself, um, you know, just saddled with a bunch of debt and extreme losses in its tax revenue. And it made all those cuts I told you about. And, uh, and in California, you have to declare a fiscal crisis before you can enter bankruptcy. The state doesn't really intervene, which is why you see California being one of those places where we've had more bankruptcies. Now, I understand that cities will eventually emerge in a couple of years, but it sounds like a lot of damage is done. One of the big problems with um, out-migration, which you mentioned in Stockton, like people don't have faith in their government anymore. They don't want to um, continue to live in a place uh, where they don't have the faith in the leaders and, and don't see the return on their taxpaying dollars. So um, can you talk us through um, once a city does decide to file for bankruptcy, obviously a lot of downsides, but when they emerge, um, how quickly does it take a city to rebound, if at all? That's a really great question. The how how quick can the rebound happen? And it depends on sort of how deep the bankruptcy is, how big your city is. And we don't really quite know the answer to that question in terms of, you know, the modern era bankruptcies, uh, at least the ones that have made the really big headlines. Um, Vallejo in California filed for bankruptcy in 2008, and it's still struggling. It, it exited uh, in a couple of years, and it's 
you know, it's, it's doing okay. It hasn't filed for bankruptcy again, but it, it's not a flourishing city. And it's one of those cities, like many in Connecticut, that was once a huge hub. And Vallejo, it was a massive, a big shipping center um, and had a, had a huge port. And it still does. But it's, you know, its heyday was 50, 60 years ago, 100 years ago. And so it's one of those cities that has to reinvent itself and make do with what it has. And so bankruptcy helped it restructure its debts. Um, and and that sort of thing. But in terms of rebuilding the economy, that's not something bankruptcy really addresses. And it's the same for all these other cities that, that, you know, Detroit is the same way. Bankruptcy is a process where you get your books balanced and you renegotiate with your creditors under the protection of a court. And you don't and you aren't, you know, you're, you're being protected from being sued by anybody during this process. And you basically get to sit down and hammer out deals. And then you exit bankruptcy, and most and and you're required to come up with a fiscal plan. Stockton, for example, had this you know ten year fiscal plan that um, was also part of its bankruptcy process. But the the real kind of hook is it really is up to not the people elected officials who ushered the city through the bankruptcy process, but it's up to their uh, successors because people move on, elected officials move on. In some of these cases, city managers who are not elected, they move on to other cities. And so people really have to stick to the plan. And that we just don't know if that's going to happen yet. This is where we live. Today, we're discussing municipal bankruptcies in light of Hartford's fiscal problems and the possibility that without state aid, the capital could file for Chapter 9 protection. Uh, we're learning about municipal bankruptcy today from Liz Farmer. She's joining us from NPR Studios in Washington, D.C. She's a f- public finance reporter at Governing Magazine. Now, one of the best-known cases of a city filing for bankruptcy is the Motor City. To tell us more, we invited Nathan Bomey to the show. He's a business reporter at USA Today, author of Detroit Resurrected to Bankruptcy and back. He covered Detroit's bankruptcy for the Detroit Free Press. Nathan, welcome to where we live. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, break it down for us again on, on Detroit. We know that Detroit uh, filed for bankruptcy, I believe, in, in 2013. It obviously wasn't the first American city to do so, but it made headlines anyway because of the amount of, of debt that Detroit was facing. Yeah, you know, a city of two million people in the 1950s ended up with Fewer than 700,000 people by 2013. You know, 18 billion dollars in debt, 170,000 creditors, you know, 32,000 pensioners. This was a city that you know helped preserve freedom for the world during World War II as the arsenal of democracy. That ended up with democracy suspended in the form of an emergency manager appointed by the governor of Michigan to help rescue the city from its financial problems. You know, the city by the time it filed for bankruptcy in 2013 was paying a 40% of its budget to debt. So health care and bonds and pensions basically accounted for four out of ten dollars of what was already a small budget because the city was truly broke. And that would have gone to about 70 percent within a few years. So this was completely unsustainable and Detroit had to do something to give itself a second chance. And you know, the city not only was broke, but also had terrible services. So you know, public safety was was broken, and the bus system was shattered, and this forty percent of the street lights were out be, because they couldn't afford, in many ways, to do these things. And so, uh, the the city of Detroit needed a second chance, and that's what bankruptcy provided. 
We're talking today because uh, Hartford's facing some fiscal problems, as well as the the state of Connecticut. Um, Hartford's on its way to being insolvent. Not there yet. Uh, The lights are still working. People are getting paid. uh, But there is a path to bankruptcy, and city officials are um, looking at uh, possibilities. But I'm curious, you know, since Detroit filed bankruptcy, um, you know, when the city leaders made that decision, they had pretty much hit rock bottom. They had to do something. What was the response from city residents? You know, it was a very controversial decision. You know, this was uh, in particular because the governor, uh, who was a Republican, had appointed a, uh, a African American, uh, you know, uh, emergency manager who, you know, was a, a basically was a lifelong Democrat. But I don't think that the fact that his political affiliation aligned with the city of Detroit's typical voting pattern mattered much, because this was someone who was appointed to uh, ultimately, um, you know, take away the the sort of the rights that people. In Detroit, had as a you know to elect their own leadership. On the other hand, you know you have to look at it and say democracy uh, maybe failed Detroit because it allowed Detroit to get in this position where you know the, it took the police 30 minutes on average to get to the scene of an emergency call, and you know the uh, firefighters were overwhelmed with arson and and abandoned properties that you know basically took them away from servicing uh, citizens who still lived in the city. And, you know, this was a, a city that needed some, needed help. And yet I think that it was natural for the city residents to be upset at the filing of the bankruptcy because it was a very dramatic moment and, um, uh, you know, forced, I think, the, the, the people of the city to sort of uh, grapple with the fact that this decline had occurred. Um, but I think what you saw was, over the course of this case, uh, the, the people of Detroit ended up, uh, you know, I think uh, in many at least siding with with the emergency manager, and that's an emblematic of the fa- uh, you know that's emblematic in um, the fact that the emergency manager ended up getting the city officials on his side. The city council uh, stood by his side and voted on behalf, voted in favor of the bankruptcy plan uh, to restructure the city's debts, and and so you know even the mayor who had many fights with the the city th- throughout the case ended up this emergency manager ended up siding with him too. So um, I think that that when they realized that the bankruptcy was designed to give the city a second chance, um, then there was more support over time. I wanted to take a listener call now. Uh, Ken's calling from Hartford. Ken, you're on the show. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me on. I just want to make a, make a statement of clarity before I ask my question. Uh, your previous uh, reporter there said that it was democracy that failed, and I think it's capitalism that's failing our local institutions. Detroit failed because massive amounts of capital created a huge city and then completely withdrew from that city when it became cheaper to do business elsewhere. So, and I think that's what we're seeing with Hartford. But I want to I want to find out what what it is that the actual savings is. So Detroit spent 170 million dollars on attorneys' fees, from what I gather, according to Tom Condon's article in the Connecticut Mirror yesterday. What can Hartford expect to send, spend on attorney's fees, and what will be our net gain? What's the net takeaway? All right, Ken, thank you for those questions. Uh, Nathan, did you want to respond? Sure. Outstanding questions, and I agree with you that capitalism did fail Detroit in the sense that you know the outflow of industry and the automotive industry's collapse over years, um, you know, led in many ways to Detroit's uh, revenue collapse. And you know, you can also uh, look at the, the massive population loss that Detroit occurred as having been significant. But 
I would layer on top of that the the many uh, mis the much mismanagement and missteps that were made on behalf of the city's uh, you know leadership and the massive borrowing that occurred over time was also a significant factor. But um, but you know in terms of the the fees and what this costs and what you actually get out of it, bankruptcy is a very expensive process, and this is one of the reasons why you want to avoid it because once you end up in bankruptcy, you have to bring on people who know how to handle this process. It's a very rare. Uh, process municipal bankruptcy, and so you have to um, bring on the the few people who actually know what they're doing. And and I, you know, you could sort of hire folks who aren't familiar with the process and maybe aren't quite as high level as some of the typical Chapter Nine bankruptcy lawyers in this country. But then you risk, um, you know, going up against creditors who will be very well staffed with the best attorneys in the world and could potentially end up with a better outcome than the city. And so that's the argument on, on behalf uh, in favor of. You know, folks who earn a, quite a lot, and they do earn a lot. I will, you know, that there's no doubt about it. The outcome in Detroit, well, the city was paying 40% of its budget to debt before the bankruptcy. Uh, after it was over, they had about, um, depending on how you look at it, between 20 and 30%, uh, uh, more like 20% of the budget is now going toward debt. So that's a ballpark figure, but essentially they have 100 to $200 million per year to spend on services that they didn't have before. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's good news. It's breathing room. It's not um, a massive amount of leeway, so the city has to continue to be very prudent with the way it spends and borrows. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the phone with us is Nathan Bomey, a business reporter at USA Today, author of Detroit Resurrected to Bankruptcy and Back. Today we're finding out what leads a city to file for bankruptcy and the good and not so good repercussions of that decision. Liz Farmer is also here with us, public finance reporter at Governing Magazine. Coming up, we're going to hear more about Detroit and find out how other cities closer to Connecticut have dealt with financial crises. There's other options out there before a city files for bankruptcy. We'll learn more more, and you can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning about what leads a city to file for bankruptcy. Detroit is one of the best-known cases. How has that city changed since it filed for Chapter 9 protection from creditors? And what about cities closer to home? Are there lessons Hartford can learn before it makes a decision if it doesn't get the $40 million in state aid it's hoping for? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Coming up, we'll hear from the Connecticut General Assembly's House Majority Leader later in the show, but I want to go back to Detroit and Nathan Bomey, business reporter at USA Today, author of Detroit Resurrected to Bankruptcy and Back. He covered Detroit's bankruptcy for the Detroit Free Press. I wanted to learn a little bit more about uh, the resurgence that's happening in Detroit since it emerged from bankruptcy, Nathan. Uh, What's going on there now? Well, I think there's a lot of encouraging things happening in Detroit now. You've seen a significant amount of investment in the downtown and midtown areas. These are the central business district areas of Detroit where there's a lot of investment. Much of it's fueled by Dan Gilbert, the billionaire uh, who owns the Cleveland Cavaliers, and but is all but is actually from Detroit and you know has invested a considerable amount of his own fortune in in lifting the city and has renovated many different uh, many abandoned buildings and um, there's a lot of energy downtown. I think anyone who uh, has seen our downtown Detroit over the last 20 years would acknowledge that there is a lot of energy and it's a vibrant place to be now and that's encouraging. And the apartment vacancy rates are very low and um, so that's good news. Um, On the city budget side, you see that the city of Detroit has posted 
consecutive surpluses now after uh, emerging from bankruptcy, and that's an astounding development for anyone who has seen the city of Detroit decline over the last 30 years. And so the fact that they'd be posting surpluses is something that no one would ever have guessed 10 years ago, uh, just because of the massive contraction in the city over the last um, uh, several decades. Um, but the un- but unfortunately, you know, many of Detroit's challenges remain. This is a city that has that is still broken in many ways because the school system, for example, uh, there's this lack of uh, basic opportunity for students there, and, and there's a controversy over how to overhaul the schools. And without good schools, I don't think that young families will move to Detroit anytime soon. And and so, you know, there's also a, continues to be a crime problem in Detroit, which has um, a major um, problem with uh, with violent crime. You know, in fact, the murder rate in Detroit remains one of the highest in the country. And so, you know, that although it has come down, and that's that's good news as well. So, yeah, and then lastly, I'd mention the lack of economic opportunity. You know, there just aren't the kind of jobs in the Motor City there used to be. In fact, it's the Motor City is not really even a good term for it anymore because Detroit only has uh, one and a half full assembly plants, believe it or not, because one of the plants is located on the uh, on the city border and straddles another city. So, you know, this is a city that has many challenges, but like Liz mentioned before, you know, bankruptcy is not intended to address some of those things. So some of those issues are policy issues that go far beyond anything a bankruptcy could ever deal with. I wanted to get perspective from a city resident in Detroit. Joining the conversation now is Shirley Lightsey. Uh, she lives in Detroit. Shirley, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So tell me uh, your perception of, of city leadership uh, before uh, your city filed for bankruptcy. And we just heard from Nathan Bomey, a reporter, about uh, a little bit of the resurgence happening in Detroit. Um, how do you feel about the outcome? The outcome is, is wonderful, and it's um, very good to see. I was born and raised, went all the way through Wayne State University in the city of Detroit, so Detroit is my, is my city. Uh, what I have seen since the bankruptcy, because I was heavily involved in the bankruptcy, I was ap- actually representing two different groups. I was selected by the Department of Justice to be on the retiree committee, and then I was president of the non-uniform uh, retirees for the city of Detroit, and that's been going on for almost 30 years. So I've got a lot of background, I'm an HR uh, major, and a lot of background on human issues. And it, the bankruptcy was unavoidable, and I could spend the next probably day or so telling you all the things that were going wrong that nobody was paying attention to, but it's history now, and it has been corrected but to see a city that could not turn on the lights, could not send police help when someone was being robbed in their home, who didn't have uh, the equipment for their emergency medical uh, vehicles, if they even had a vehicle available, to see all the decline of, of just things that taxpayers were supposed to receive was was unconscionable. And when they put it in front of you uh, with your uh, reports so that you could actually see what had happened over the last 10, 20 years, then you understood. Bankruptcy was something that we did not want. We had no choice. After going through the whole process, it was necessary. I had to sit there and, and uh, support the bankruptcy because there was no other way to go. Without the bankruptcy, none of the ills that I have just mentioned would have even been looked at. There are over 7,000 uh, people who uh, work for the city of Detroit who are uh, now probably living in the city of Detroit. My last count is about a year old. And those people deserve to have the services that they're paying taxes for. Well, that wasn't happening. Not downtown, not in the neighborhoods, nowhere. 
and it was not really the fault of some of the administrators and the people that are there now. It, it was a process that, that was failing for the last 20 years that I can see. So uh, we had to vote for bankruptcy. We had to give part of our pension away, and we won't get it back. And that, I think, is the hardest thing that we have to look at. The biggest cost right now for my retirees is their health care. Our health care was, was cut between 80 and 90 percent. And health care is something that you can't predict. You, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And through all of this, uh, the retirees, God bless them, they all they voted, 70-some-odd 70 percent voted for the bankruptcy, which was what we needed to go into the bankruptcy and, and end it and uh, start correcting some of the ills of the city. Now, Shirley, can I ask you, you mentioned a lot of the sacrifice by city residents, city workers, uh, retirees having to do givebacks. Um, why are people, the people that have stayed in Detroit, why did they stay? Why did they what? Why did they stay in Detroit? The people that have stayed in Detroit since the bankruptcy. Well, many, many are old. I've, you know, out of the um, 11 or 12,000 retirees that we have, probably six or 7,000 of them still live in the city of Detroit. They're old. They paid for their homes. Mm-hmm. They worked. They did what they were supposed to do. They got to the point where they thought they were going to have a comfortable retirement because they had saved and worked for that. Some of them didn't, as we know. Some of them were frivolous and threw away their money, but I would say the majority of them did what they were supposed to do. They had a three-legged stool, and and all of a sudden, this comes along and just knocks it out from under them. So they stayed because they have no choice. All of those who could move and wanted to have moved, Mm. and that's part of the problem, because when they move, there go tax dollars, because you may not have someone to pick up the slack that, that that piece of property left. So it's very difficult uh, to to actually measure some of those things. It can be done, but I don't mm. think it's been really measured. But can you imagine working for the city of Detroit for 30, 40 years, and then when you retire, all of a sudden your lights are out on your street. You can't get re- you can't get someone to come to your home because they're breaking in your house. All you can't get assistance because you're having a heart attack. All of those things, and you've done everything right. Mm. Uh, our retirees did what they were supposed to do. They followed the process. They followed those that were leading them, and they were led astray. And the only thing that bothers me out of this whole thing, the the people that gave up the most, who are the the city of Detroit retirees, have never been thanked. No one has said thank you, retirees, for giving up because we know it's now a bigger struggle for you than it was before. You know, we've got three or four thousand widows that that are recipients of, of pensions that, that are living off of a smaller pension than if their husband was living. So there are just many factors in this bankruptcy that people don't think about that have affected the retirees and had already affected the city. And the city is on the road to recoverment. And I pray every day that they will continue on that road because it only takes one small mistake to mess up the whole thing. So. Well, thank you, Shirley, for giving us some perspective from you. I wanted to turn back to uh, Liz Farmer, public finance reporter at Governing Magazine. I'm listening to Shirley talk about the sacrifices that a lot of the retirees made. Um, they have no choice but to stay in Detroit. Um, can you reflect on um, what happens in terms of collective bargaining when uh, cities file for bankruptcy, Liz? Yeah, sure. Shirley uh, alluded to a couple of things that are really very common across all cities when they are trying to grapple with their pension debt, and that is that um, so often uh, city officials and union leaders argue over what's already happened. 
and they argue over mistakes made by past officials and promises made. And pensions are a promise. Pensions are a contractual obligation, and um, and they ha- it has that it has different strengths depending on what state you're in. But generally, but you cannot cut pensions. And um, and so what happens is is that typically, uh, you know, union. Union officials want to point to what has already happened and what the promises were, and it's very difficult for any real progress to be made until you get to that really, really, really painful point of the things that Shirley mentioned. Streetlights aren't on. You know, people call nine one one, and it takes half an hour for somebody to show up. So uh, there has to be a shared sacrifice when it comes to when it comes to that point. And and unfortunately, you know, in so many places that there's a lot of arguing over a lot of years with folks pointing fingers on, you know across the the way and the one thing one thing bankruptcy allows one of the many things bankruptcy allows cities is is that sort of protection from okay let's stop arguing about what's already happened that is over bankruptcy court means that we are looking forward now and we have to figure out what is acceptable to everybody and you know what kind of shared sacrifice are we going to be able to make because it's going to happen you know we're in bankruptcy and so bankruptcy does give officials that cover and in Stockton and in Detroit judges have ruled that officials can cut pensions in under the federal protection of, of bankruptcy. Uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithangel. Today we're talking about uh, what happens when a city files for bankruptcy in light of, of one of the options on the table for Hartford. Uh, they're not there yet, but we wanted to learn uh, from other examples and other options before a city files for bankruptcy. We're going to learn about that in just a few minutes. I wanted to turn back to, to Nathan Bomey, again, who's joining us by phone, business reporter at USA Today, author of Detroit Resurrected to Bankruptcy and Back. Detroit, a much bigger uh, city than Hartford. What lessons can Hartford learn in Detroit's uh, in Detroit's path? Well, I, I think that, you know, uh, one of the things to keep in mind is that bankruptcy is a very um, uh, unknown process in the sense that, you know, once you enter it, uh, things can happen that you don't intend. And uh, one of the key lessons would be to watch out for city assets because although uh, Chapter 9 bankruptcy law does not require uh, cities to sell assets, and, and in fact, cities cannot be forced to do so, um, it's one thing that probably will be considered during the process to help uh, stabilize the budget. So if the city uh, of Hartford owns certain property or uh, assets that could be liquidated to help uh, preserve um, city services or to help pay off creditors, that's something that might be considered. Uh, and then secondly, I'd also uh, consider the actual management process through which this bankruptcy is led. One of the reasons why Detroit's bankruptcy went fast was because the emergency manager who was appointed to lead the city was uh, uh, did not have to consider the elective process. And, and that's a very controversial statement, and I don't necessarily uh, make an endorsement or a condemnation of that process. I just mention it to say that what it allowed the city of Detroit to do was to make split-second decisions that are required in bankruptcy court um, versus when you have elected officials in control of a bankruptcy, there can be much debate about what to do, and that can really slow the process down. And so that's why most municipal bankruptcies have taken years. Uh, and there are other factors as well, but that's the primary reason. And so if Hartford ends up in bankruptcy, um, you know, one thing they may need to consider is appointing someone uh, who has the authority to make some of these decisions without having to get um, the approval of the elected officials. And, and so uh, that's just one of many different uh, un- factors that you have to consider when you end up in uh, bankruptcy court. Well, thank you, Nathan Bomey, for joining us. Uh, author again, Detroit Resurrected to Bankruptcy and Back. Uh, he covered uh, the Detroit bankruptcy extensively when he worked for the Detroit Free Press. Nathan, thanks for your time today. 
Hey, thank you so much. Now, I mentioned we wanted to speak about some of the options uh, on the table before a city files for bankruptcy. Uh, Joining the conversation now is Mike Dobbs, Managing Editor for Reminder Publications in Western Massachusetts. Uh, We we invited Mike to the show because uh, we understand that Springfield, uh, our neighbor to the north, um, actually was very close to bankruptcy, and they, the state, and they came up with an idea uh, to help uh, the city of Springfield, and it was through a financial control board. Uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Um, so give us an update. Um, first, but give us a little back, we'll backtrack a little before we find out how Springfield is doing today. What led Springfield to go this route, this financial control board route, instead of filing for bankruptcy? Well, in 2004, Charlie Ryan uh, became the new mayor of Springfield, and he discovered, much to his horror, that Springfield was teetering on bankruptcy. Uh, This was something that had not been uh, public knowledge during the previous administration of Michael Albano. And and Ryan was faced with a terrible dilemma as a mayor. Uh, He had to find money to run the city, um, but that money was not apparent. he was able to work with then-Governor Mitt Romney and with the leadership in the legislature to come up with an alternative to receivership. This, is, this had been done before in Massachusetts, where uh, I believe it was the city of Chelsea, uh, where basically they went bankrupt, and so the state installed a, a receiver. And that receiver is, is basically a municipal dictator in, in terms of running the, the operations of, of the community. In this case, however, they set up a a finance control board. So they set up a a group of people whose job it was to bring Springfield back from the brink, and they also extended uh, a line of credit to the the city. So the city was able to meet its obligations um, and then work on paying the state back. And the finance control board with, with Mayor Ryan really saved the city. It brought it back from the precipice. And, um... It was not easy, but it was what was needed to be done at the time. Now, Liz Farmer is with us, public finance reporter at Governing Magazine. We started the hour talking about how cities filing for bankruptcy is very uncommon. But in terms of these financial or fiscal control boards, how often are these happening around the country, Liz? That's a lot more common. I still wouldn't call it an everyday occurrence, but it certainly is a much more palatable solution, both for at the, you know, for state officials who don't want that scar of a you know municipal bankruptcy, and certainly for, uh, for city officials. Actually, they don't like it as much because no city official likes to give up any amount of power. Uh, but uh, in terms of a track record, we do have a lot more of those across the country, and we can, and here in Washington D.C. in the uh, mid '90s, uh, you know, it was put under the control of a fin- or mid to late 90s, it was put under a financial control board. New York City, that happened in the, in the mid-70s. And I, I, I think that we can, I don't think anyone would argue with the fact that both Washington, D.C. and New York City are doing pretty darn well today. So, um, you know, it's city officials don't like it. Um, you know, that's happening right now in Puerto Rico. There's a lot of resistance to the idea of a financial control board being put in place there. And so, but what it happens is it, so often one of the root causes of bankruptcy is about management. And uh, corrupt or not corrupt, uh, it doesn't really matter. But it's, you know, a string of bad decisions made a long time ago that have compounded and compounded, and nobody wanted to fix them. 
because they wanted to cut a ribbon or, um, you know, and get reelected. And so um, financial control boards are not elected people. They are appointed, uh, which, again, city officials really don't like, is that suspension of democracy that Nathan alluded to earlier. But these people can come in and make those tough decisions that need to be made and cram stuff down they need to. And, and the, it, it, the locals don't like it. But ultimately, it does seem to be a um, it does seem to put cities and localities on the right track. Liz, you mentioned mismanagement. Uh, we hear, especially in the suburbs in Connecticut, lots of finger pointing at Hartford. But Hartford, uh, you know, does have only half of its uh, properties are, are taxable, and they've got you know other issues in terms of pension liabilities. How do those all play into it? Hartford is under a, a, a big strain of debt, and um, and and one of the things I was reading about the city, maybe uh, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, Nathan had talked earlier. Uh, speakers had talked about health care promises, and generally, when you're looking at pensions, you have the pensions, and then the, but you're also paying for retiree health care, and those in some places can be cut, and they have far fewer protections than pensions do in terms of what officials can do outside of a bankruptcy process, but. I was reading in Hartford that uh, that retiree health care is uh, has a contractual obligation as well, and so you can't cut that. Um, it, not that you want to, because that's painful to do. No official wants to do that. But so that, all of that to say is that Hartford has very limited financial flexibility, and that is something that credit agent credit rating agencies look at. Not only does it have limited financial flexibility in terms of its you know its general fu- its fund balance, its you know kind of leftover money at the end of the year is almost significant at this point. Half of its budget, roughly half of its budget, relies on state aid. And we're looking at a state that is in its own fiscal crisis. So there's a huge amounts of uncertainty for the city. And all of that plays into its finances. And nobody, nobody who likes uncertainty. And so officials don't know how they can plan. They don't know how they're going to you know, even cut into these mounting liabilities because retirees are living longer, the health care is more expensive, um, you know, they have this bond debt, and now it's more expensive for the city to, to borrow. So it, it, it is struggling to do anything about its mounting debt load. And that just means the leftover money it might have to run the city is going to be less and less. Hmm. I wanted to go back to uh, uh, Mike Dobbs, managing editor for Reminder Publications in Western Mass. Before we had to break, Mike, uh, I understand that MGM is now uh, investing a lot of money into Springfield with the casino uh, coming around the corner. Um, Tell us about that impact on the city. Well, um, Springfield was chosen as as one of the places to put one of the three casinos that we now have, or we're planning to have in in Massachusetts. Uh, MGM is investing nearly $1 billion into its downtown casino. Uh, What's probably most important to our municipal budget is the fact that MGM has started paying ahead of schedule certain uh, payments and fees to the city, which has been able, which then has used that for a municipal budget. It's sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul to a certain degree, but um, at least we do have this money because uh, with increases with various uh, expenses, uh, Springfield is, is, is in much better shape than it was uh, 10 years ago, um, but it's still at the same time, it's, it's facing some urban challenges. I want to thank Mike Dobbs for giving us a little perspective on Springfield. Thank you for your time, Mike. 
Thank you. When we come back from the break, Representative Matt Ritter of Hartford will join us. He's majority leader in the House. How likely is it that the state of Connecticut will give Hartford what it's been asking for, the money it needs to stay afloat in the tune of $40 million? But that's a short-term fix. We'll ask him what else needs to happen for the city to avoid bankruptcy in the future. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today we're learning more about municipal bankruptcies. Can Hartford avoid filing for Chapter 9 protection? Before we head to our next guest, uh, Aaron's calling from Hartford. Aaron, you're on the show. Hello. Lucy, I was happy to hear you touch on this briefly, but it's something that I think is commonly overlooked, is that the city of Hartford has less than half of its land is taxable. Because the city of Hartford essentially props up the rest of the state by providing buildings and services that are utilized by all state residents and doesn't receive tax money for that, we essentially are providing a form of welfare to the rest of the state of Connecticut. If the state paid 100% of its property taxes, the city of Hartford would not have financial problems. If the state even paid 100% of its pilot funding, the city of Hartford would not have financial problems. So, and frankly, I think to use the city of Detroit as, as a comparison is a bit apples to oranges in the sense that the city of Detroit is not a capital city. The city, uh, the city of Hartford has not been plagued by the mismanagement, financial mismanagement for decades that the city of Detroit did. Um, the city of Hartford has not seen the population loss that the city of Detroit did. You know, the city of Hartford is one of the few communities in the state where the population is growing, where the median income is slowly coming up, where we have, you know, contrary to, to the, all the press of Edna, we have many businesses moving back into the city. So you have a growing population, you have more jobs coming to the city of Hartford, and yet we still have these financial loans. I can't think of another city in America that would survive this long with less than half of its property uh, producing property tax income. So the reality is the majority of the city of Hartford's financial loans are a result of the city propping up the state, and I think it's something that needs to be discussed more. I really think it's unfair um, even in your opening statement, to say that the city can't survive without the state propping it up. I, I really think uh, that's missing the ball of, of mm. the struggles of, of why city departments have financial. Well, Aaron, thank you for your call. We weren't comparing Detroit to Hartford, but we're simply uh, showing you uh, what led Detroit uh, to file for bankruptcy, uh, one of the nation's largest bankruptcy, a record $18 billion uh, in debt, and that's what led Detroit to file bankruptcy. Liz Farmer is also on the, with us, public finance reporter at Governing Magazine. Uh, to explain bankruptcy to us because, again, the city has hinted at filing for bankruptcy. Uh, Mayor Bronin has been traveling around the state for the past year asking for the suburbs, as you mentioned, Aaron, uh, to help Hartford, which does take in a lot of uh, the regional problems and ha- doesn't get the pilot money that you mentioned, payment in lieu of taxes money that's not fully funded. We invited Representative Matt Ritter to join us. He's the House Majority Leader, also represents Hartford, and Representative Ritter has talked about all the issues that Aaron just brought up. But Representative Ritter, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So uh, we know that Hartford is asking for an additional $40 million in state aid at a time when Connecticut is in a, in a fiscal crisis. So the, the question is, will you be able to uh, give Hartford what it's been asking for? Well, I think the first thing is we have to get a state budget uh, agreed upon, and I think we're working hard on that. We'll be meeting with the governor today, and legislative leadership will be meeting tomorrow. And I think to the extent we get a state budget, I think that Hartford and other cities, I've always tried to be very careful. It's not just about Hartford. We have other cities that are 
actually pretty close to maybe a couple years away from the same financial condition. We want to invest in these cities. We want to help them grow. So I think any budget deal we reach will will take care of those concerns, hopefully. Now, if um, we weren't able to get, if you are not able to get a deal to help uh, Hartford uh, with that additional state aid, you know, what's at stake? Talk us through uh, not just the the image problem uh, that will um, sustain if Hartford were to file for bankruptcy, but as we heard from Liz Farmer, who's covered uh, municipal bankruptcies for Governing Magazine, you know, the other the other impacts of of filing for bankruptcy on a city. I mean, I think immediately, I think the state's credit rating, which has already been downgraded uh, a couple times in the last year, would be downgraded again, potentially, when you have your capital city. Uh, Again, we're not as big as a state like Michigan or California. We're a very small state. I think you would see an impact there. Hartford is also part of the MDC with uh, neighboring towns. that They issue bonds. The MDC does that are then paid for back by the towns. I think you might see our neighbors look at issues uh, around credit ratings if Hartford were to go bankrupt. So I think there's some real implications. That just means higher borrowing costs, higher property taxes for neighboring towns. So we are all in this together. And I think you you can't just say, well, it's Hartford's problem. They'll figure it out. I think it would spill over to the suburbs and the entire state pretty quickly. Now, what about a fiscal control board? Uh, We had a gentleman on a little bit earlier to talk about um, how Springfield avoided bankruptcy. Springfield, um, again, may have more similarities uh, to Hartford. Um, Can you talk us through uh, that option? I know the governor has also brought that that, uh, proposal to the table before about a a fiscal oversight board for Hartford. Mm So the council has resisted it uh, greatly, um, and that has been something that we will not ignore. I, I'll say this. I don't know that the city right now is a spending problem. I think the last two budgets that you've looked at, or actually beyond that, I think the last three or four budgets, the mill rate has been held flat. I think city spending has continued to go down from maybe where it was about 12, 13 years ago. The, the problem, though, is is what happens if the state puts a huge infusion of, of money into the city is making sure that money does not just go and get spent at that point in time. So I think uh, there's two types of oversight boards. There's oversight boards that have legal authority to amend budgets, to uh, vote on contracts. That is the Waterbury model you saw some 15 years ago. Another type of oversight is providing guidance, providing information, providing review, and then if things don't work out, then going to a heightened tier. That's sort of what the governor has talked about. I know there was some discomfort with uh, his original proposal that, that landed in the Legislative Finance Committee a couple months ago. But we continue to talk about what strings does the city need attached to it if there's a huge infusion of cash. I'll give you a couple on the top of my head. As a legislative leader, that would be a priority for me. A bonding cap, right? The city of Hartford probably got into major troubles. Uh, one of the major issues they got into was they were borrowing way too much money about 15, 16 years ago. Granted, it was for school construction, but the bills continued to grow very, very quickly. The second thing the city has to look at is if there is new money, it would not be eligible for, for arbitration awards, right? One of, one of the concerns I've heard from the governor is we put more money in, would it just mean more raises for municipal employees? And I'm not picking on municipal employees, but you can't take $40 million and then give it to raises for people. Um, the, the hard negotiations, the zeros that some of the local folks have agreed to are going to have to stay and put, unfortunately. Now, um, we mentioned after effects, and uh, we found out that, you know, through the Detroit bankruptcy, you know, they did, before they filed for bankruptcy, try different revenue streams, an income tax in the 60s, utility tax in the 70s, a gaming yeah. tax in the 90s. What about new revenue streams? And, you know, is that problematic? The, the only revenue stream that I, I've heard of, generally speaking, for municipalities revolves around the sales tax, uh, which is 
you know, interesting because it would not make us unique by any stretch of the imagination. If you go to New York, they just layer it on your bill, right? There's multiple taxes. There's the state sales tax. There's a local sales tax. So that, obviously, the mayor's talked about it before. Um, one thing we've heard more and more in, in our, you know, budget discussions is looking to diversify municipal revenue streams. So it's something we'd consider. If it's not a local sales tax, would you do it on food and beverage, for example, right? Could you add a half percent or 1% for people who dine out in restaurants downtown and things like that? And I've actually met with some of the, the largest owners of restaurants in downtown Hartford, and I asked them if they thought it would have any impact. They said it would have none. Uh, you're talking about $1 for every $100 someone spends at dinner. And the numbers can add up pretty quickly for the city. Uh, our estimates are, depending on what you levy and, and what you consider a food and beverage tax, you could be talking 5 to $10 million in one year. Now we know Representative Ritter, you represent the city, um, and we Very know proud that to do so. yeah, and we know Hartford didn't get here overnight. Um, why didn't the state intervene sooner, or the General Assembly talk about ways uh, to help the city? Um, given the fact, again, as the caller mentioned earlier, you know the pilot funding has never been fully funded for the city either. Mm-hmm. Well, Connecticut has a, a history of, of not intervening quickly enough. Waterbury. Let me just distinguish Hartford from Waterbury for for a second. Waterbury, and I think it was two thousand two. Uh, was on the verge of bankruptcy. They had no rainy day fund. Okay, similar to Hartford. They had a pension fund that was about under 10% funded. Think about that for a second, under 10%. That doesn't happen overnight. Hartford's pension fund, on the other hand, is over 75% fully funded. Uh, In many cases, it is uh, uh, exactly what many towns in the state wish they had. So Hartford is a little different than where Waterbury was uh, and other municipalities. But unfortunately, what tends to happen is um, it's natural for people in local office to say everything is fine, right? Because you got to run again. And I, I think that it's just a natural human instinct to say, we can handle it. We'll figure it out next year. A lot of towns go year to year and you have good budgets, you have bad budgets. And I think this is a wake up call because I've kept saying this. It's not just Hartford, Bridgeport, Waterbury, uh, in particular, uh, West Haven's another town have a lot of similar problems right now. And so if we just say, let's fix Hartford and not worry about the other communities, they're going to be here in two or three years as well. We have to begin to make investments. And if you haven't noticed what's happened with Aetna and with GE in the last couple of years, it's really about where do people want to work and live and cities as the wave of the future. And Hartford, by the way, is growing leaps and bounds. 2,000 new apartments downtown, Yukon moving from West Hartford. So there is momentum. Mm -hmm. The most important thing is that we don't you know, stop the momentum, we keep it going. Representative Ritter, you said you're confident that the additional $40 million will come through for Hartford, uh, but you know your colleagues from the suburbs, they have constituents who feel like Hartford is mismanaged, they keep getting money, and it's not spent in the right ways. I mean, what do you say to your suburban colleagues to get that money for Hartford before June 30th? Yeah. Uh, well, two things I would say. One is, if you live in the suburban towns around Hartford, I guess as you work here, uh, many or you know someone who does and your family or friends. So everyone has an investment in this at the end of the day. And you, you want your capital city to thrive. You want the places where you work, where your businesses are trying to grow jobs. You want them to, to, to be stable financially. The second thing I would say is I don't disagree. Right. Uh, there's been some financial mismanagement. Uh, the soccer stadium comes to mind as one of the biggest examples uh, of, of recent uh, notice that's now under investigation. There's been contracts that were voted on that were too too rich, too lavish. Right. Mm-hmm. I think if we could all go back in time in the 80s and 90s, we probably would say, does it make sense for, for people to collect overtime in their pensions and be able to spike them the last three years? 
what I would say is a lot of changes have been made. Representative think, Ritter, yep. we are running out of time. We do thank you for your time. We'll keep our eyes peeled on the state legislature as you work to, to vote on a budget as well as uh, whether that money comes through for uh, the city of Hartford. Representative Ritter, also Liz Farmer, thank you so much for joining us from Governing Magazine. This is where we live.